We are beginning a new series that's going to take us through this fall. I'm going to be skipping around. I'm still going to go in order, but we're not going to cover every single verse in the entire letter. We're going to take one passage from every chapter. And so this week, as we kick off, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. Let me sort of set the context for what's happening with the letter to the Corinthians, this second letter. You need to realize that it's actually the third letter. Uh, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and then there was some sin in the church that Paul wanted them to deal with. They didn't deal with it. So Paul wrote a second letter that is now lost to us. And uh, it's called the severe letter, or the letter of tears, where Paul had to rebuke the church rather firmly, but he did it with a broken heart. And he didn't know how the Corinthians were going to respond. That letter's been lost. And this gives us even more confidence that we have in the Bible the very words God wanted us to have. Paul likely wrote all kinds of other letters that we don't have. And only the letters God wanted to be in Scripture are in Scripture. We can have confidence that we have here the very Word of God. Well, Paul gets word that the Corinthian church did repent. They did deal with the sinning member. And as a matter of fact, they dealt with him in such a way that he repented. And Paul's going to talk about in this letter the need for reconciliation now that discipline has accomplished its desired result. But what happens next is some false teachers come into Corinth. And they begin to make fun of Paul. Because Paul has gone through all kinds of pain, suffering, weakness. And they begin to say, Paul is not a true apostle. Because if he was, he wouldn't be experiencing all that pain and suffering. You see, these false teachers preached a gospel of health and wealth and prosperity. And that if you knew Jesus, you were going to have no problems in your life because the resurrection was going to take care of all pain. So Paul writes this letter to counteract that false gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. And the result is we have in 2 Corinthians Paul's most vulnerable, authentic and transparent letter. Paul is very real about his weakness, his pain, his anxiety, his fear, his frustration, his restlessness, his brokenness, and all of the struggles he faces in life. But what we also learn is that when we are most transparent with God and others about our suffering, weakness, and pain, the comfort, power, and strength of God's grace shows up in our lives. As a matter of fact, Paul is actually going to create uh, an equation where he says, to the extent that we engage and embrace suffering... 
Again, we don't go searching for it. It's, it's going to happen in this broken world. But to the extent that we engage God in our suffering, to that extent we're going to experience God's comfort, grace, and strength. The theme of our letter is going to be this. Our series is strength in weakness. We see this principle illustrated in a movie. I'm going to show you a clip from It's uh, rather old. It's called Patch Adams. It stars the late uh, Robin Williams. It's based on a true story. Patch Adams was a doctor who was filled with compassion and care for the poor, the underprivileged, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, and he wanted to provide top-rate medical care for such people in those positions of hardship. So he rallied around himself, some volunteers, some other doctors. They started a clinic. One of the volunteers was the love of Patch Adams' life. Her name was Karen. She was his fiance. Things were going marvelously. And then one night, one of the patients who was mentally ill rose up and killed his fiance. Patch Adams was completely undone. He was shut down. So shut down that he shut down the practice and was unsure that he'd ever open it again. In this scene, Patch Adams is having it out with God, which, by the way, we ought to do from time to time especially when we go through pain and suffering. God wants our authenticity, our honesty. He wants us to run to Him in our pain. And so Patch Adams does. He goes to a place in the mountains where he'd taken his fiancée to show her where he wanted to build his clinic one day to continue this practice to the poor and the underprivileged. But this time it wasn't to look at the future of his clinic, it was to pour out his heart in complaint and confusion before God. You'll see in this clip at the end a butterfly. Clearly, Patch Adams recognizes that it's been sent by God. The butterfly actually touches his own heart. And we're to presume that Patch Adams recognizes it as a sign from God, a sign from Karen, that she is now free and more light-hearted and filled with joy than she's ever been. As you watch this clip, ask yourself, the world says when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You pull yourself by your own bootstraps. You power through. You don't let people see you sweat. But the Scriptures say when the going gets tough, The tough acknowledge their weakness and run to God. How do you face pain and weakness and suffering? Watch. When the going gets tough, the tough don't get going. The tough acknowledge their weakness and run to God. And God shows up and His power is perfected in weakness. You need to know that having experienced the comfort of God, Patch Adams rediscovers his passion for the poor 
and the underserved again and starts that clinic. Strength in weakness. Where are you weak this morning? How are you experiencing pain? What suffering is right in front of your nose? God wants to meet you in that. And that's what 2 Corinthians is all about. Let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. Follow along as I read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1-11. through 11. This is God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort, too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. May God bless the hearing and teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. This is God's Word. He gave it to us because He loves us. And He wants us to know that when we face, and we will, brokenness, pain, suffering, confusion, that He is there to meet us with comfort that gives us more strength than we ever dreamed possible. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these words. They're very relevant especially now. God, we ask, speak to each one of your people in a very personal and wonderful way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So suffering in Scripture takes on all kinds of dimensions. There's physical suffering. There's emotional suffering. There's mental suffering, there's spiritual suffering, there's relational suffering, there's psychological suffering, there's spiritual trauma, 
as well. Where do you turn when you face suffering? When circumstances are hard, when situations are tragic, when seasons are horrendous. Well, God says, turn to Him and you'll experience His comfort. The film depicted Patch Adams receiving supernatural comfort through God using a butterfly. Well, 2 Corinthians 1 reveals three ways we experience the supernatural comfort of God. First of all, find supernatural comfort in a theology of suffering. I must tell you that a theology of suffering is sadly lacking from most Christians' lives. There are several reasons for that. Sadly, one of the reasons is churches don't preach through 2 Corinthians enough. We don't talk about suffering being what Christians are destined for. You don't believe me? Well, numerous, multiple times in this passage, Paul talks about affliction, about suffering. You ever seen one of those car crushers? Whether it's uh, on a, in a movie or a TV show, or maybe you've seen one live. You know, these old beat-up cars that won't run anymore, they're put in this steel box, and this lid that's made out of steel, and, and just, you know, tens of thousands of pounds of pressure come down on the car, and you begin to hear the steel creak, and the, and the steel around the doors begins to bend, and then suddenly, The windows pop and the glass shatters, and then that thing just gets squashed. There couldn't be a better description of the word Paul uses for affliction. It means incredibly intense pressure that comes through pain and suffering. And Scripture's clear that as believers that will sometimes be part of our experience as we follow Christ. The first element of a theology of suffering is that all believers, not just Paul, are destined to experience suffering. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 3 and 4, For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. We kept on continually telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, the car smasher. Look at verse 5. Verse 4 says, comforts us in all our affliction. Verse 5 says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, we will share in Christ's sufferings. Now, Christ's sufferings were uniquely atoning, right? Christ's sufferings paid the penalty for our sin to pave the way for us to experience eternal life with God. But when we trust in Christ, we're brought into living union, mysterious, mystical union with Jesus. And there's all kinds of benefits to that union with Christ. Because we're united to Christ, we're united to Christ in His righteousness. He lived a life we could never have lived. And so united to Christ in His righteousness, God the Father pours out His pleasure and delight, just as if I had done everything right. 
And God no longer turns his back on us when we blow it. Because united to Christ, God's wrath, anger, and disappointment were already poured out on Christ. And so united to Christ, God's posture toward us is always this. But united to Christ, we're also united to him in his sufferings. And Jesus continues to suffer mysteriously and mystically through our union with him. And the sufferings of Christ that were atoning continue in a non-atoning way, but still in a restorative, redemptive way in his body, the church. We are destined suffering. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot of fun, and it's not. But I'll tell you, the greatest pain people experience when they suffer is often related to thinking they must have done something wrong that caused God to lose his favor toward them, and that's why they're experiencing suffering. how much more encouraging it is to know that when you're suffering, God is no less delighted in you than he's ever been. You didn't bring your suffering on yourself. It's been ordained by God for a redemptive, restorative purpose. First element, we're all destined for suffering. Philippians 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You see, the false teachers are like many deceived Christians today who taught a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And it is those people who hold to a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel who end up hitting the wall of disillusionment because the brokenness of life will set in at some point. And not only that, God has ordained suffering to accomplish His purposes. There is no escaping it. But if you don't have a theology that is able to be robust enough to inform you about the purposes of suffering, you'll be disillusioned when, not if, you suffer. Second element of uh, the theology of suffering is it is always accompanied by God's comfort. Again, verses 4 and 5. God comforts us in all our affliction. Verse 5, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. Again, that's part of our union with Christ. It not only brings suffering, but it also brings the comfort of Christ himself from the Father. The third element in a theology of suffering is that it weans us from self-reliance. Again, the world says when the going gets tough, the tough get going. The world says never let them see you sweat. The world says power through it. Don't admit weakness. God's word says just the opposite. Suffering is ordained 
to wean us from self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Look at verses 8 and 9. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. God sends suffering to bring us to the end of ourselves. Not so we despair permanently, but so that we would despair of our own strength. And despairing of our own strength, we would turn to Jesus. Indeed, verse 9, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. In other words, whenever Paul asked himself in these circumstances, am I going to die? The answer he was convinced that was true was yes, this is going to kill me. And then look why, second part of verse 9, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul writes this verse in the Greek in such a way that he's showing his hand to let us know that he too struggled with self-reliance. And that he needed himself to be weaned from it. God doesn't orchestrate suffering because he's mean or unkind. But because he knows the worst place for us to live is in self-reliant self-sufficiency. And the best place for us to live is hoping in his power that raises the dead. And then the fourth element of a theology of suffering in this passage is that suffering always equips us to minister to others. Verse 4, He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort others in any affliction they face with the same comfort with which we've been comforted by God. Now, you may be saying, God, I don't want that gift. I don't want that ministry. I don't want that assignment. And listen, I get it. I don't want it either. But guess what? It's not about us. God wants us to minister comfort. And really, one of the only ways we're going to minister comfort is as we experience comfort in the midst of suffering. Look, I haven't suffered much in my life, but I've suffered some. And I've seen God wean me from self-reliance. I've seen God comfort me in my suffering. I've seen how He's equipped me to minister to others through my suffering. When I was newly converted... I was in a very serious relationship with a woman. And after my conversion, it was clear that we weren't moving in the same direction. That I was more interested at the moment in spiritual things than she was. And so literally with both our hearts breaking and weeping, we had to say goodbye. Well, that taught me surrender. That taught me that nothing is more important than my walk with God. And I've been able to comfort other people who, as they wrestled with following Christ, were put in positions where it was either Jesus or family. 
Jesus or job? Jesus or fill in the blank? It's not uncommon that conversion does that and puts that in people, puts people in those positions. Then I think I've told you before that uh, soon after my conversion, I went through a seven-year dark night of the soul where I felt like I was living in the dark. I felt like there was no sense of God's presence, no sense of God's delight, no sense of His favor, like I was abandoned. So in the midst of it, I did all I could do to make sure that I really believed this was true. And I read every book I could get my hands on about apologetics, the defenses of the faith, the defense of the historicity of Christ, the defense of the uh, accuracy and inspiration of the Bible. And as a result, I learned by grace to live by faith and not by sight. And as a result, God equipped me to interact with people who have real intellectual questions about the Christian faith. I didn't like it that I was in that season, but God met me, He changed me, and He used me. Our youngest son was hit by a car eight years ago. He was in the trauma center at Vanderbilt University. We got a call at midnight. His body was wrapped around itself like a pretzel. He experienced the physical pain, but you have no idea what it's like as a parent to face that from an emotional perspective. And Lori and I were weaned from self-reliance as we recognized there was not a thing we could do. We simply had to entrust and surrender our son to God. God changed us. And then he's used us to bring comfort to other parents who faced awful situations and circumstances with their children. Our oldest son and his wife faced a long season of infertility. If you've never been exposed to that, There are few circumstances that create more anxiety and fear and despair and depression than that. And once again, Lori and I were weaned from self-reliance and self-sufficiency because there was nothing we could do. And we face the emotional pain with our children. And then our oldest son and his wife entered the adoption process. And that was probably every bit as painful as the infertility process. I don't think I've ever been more frustrated, more angry, more disappointed, more disillusioned than walking through with our children the adoption process. I'm not sure there's any process in America more broken than the adoption process. And there was nothing we could do. And we were weaned again from self-reliance and self-sufficiency. But we've also been equipped to come alongside others 
who face that similar pain. It may seem like a small thing, but I wrestle with rheumatoid arthritis. My back always hurts. My knees bother me. Sometimes I just feel sick and there's nothing wrong. And I'm more compassionate to people in pain. Pain that can't seem even to be addressed. And then like Paul says, in addition to all these other things, I have upon me the daily pressures of the church. Knowing what's going on in people's lives. Knowing the brokenness of relationships and marriages and parents and children. Seeing people make poor decisions that make shipwreck of their lives. But it develops compassion. And we're able to give comfort. I don't like being equipped for ministry by experiencing suffering. I don't like that I need to be transformed through experiencing suffering. I don't like that I need to experience the comfort of God primarily by experiencing suffering. And yet, that's what a robust theology of suffering teaches us. People of God, you cannot escape it. And you cannot fix it. So many of us are in trouble spiritually, circumstantially, because we've been trying to deny our pain. Or we've been trying to control our suffering. When the going gets tough, the tough acknowledge their weakness and run to God. And then secondly, we find supernatural comfort in the fatherhood of God. All through this passage, Paul writes about the beauty of the father who loves his children and rushes to comfort them. How many times in Scripture does God portray man's relationship humans' relationship, mothers' and fathers' relationships with children and how they feel about their children to say, if you being evil know how to grant comfort and know how to pursue in compassion, then how much more will your Father in heaven do that? You see, I think many of us actually think we're more compassionate than God is. That was Patch Adams' problem. Here's Patch Adams. He, he wants to show compassion and comfort for the poor and the underserved. His, his fiance gets killed, which is tragic. It's awful. It's painful. I hope none of us has to face things like that. And yet, he says, God, if you wouldn't have rested on the Sabbath day and instead would have studied a little bit about compassion, maybe I wouldn't be in this situation. Like, Here's a man who's only showing compassion to the poor because he's an image bearer. The only reason Patch Adams even has a category called compassion and mercy is because God is the father of comfort and the God of all mercies. Folks, if you know compassion, you are an infinitesimal speck of the compassion of God. And that's what Paul says. Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, the favor of the Father. 
And later on in Corinthians, Paul says that grace perfects power in weakness. Grace is experienced more fully when we embrace suffering more completely. And the grace comes from our Father. It's, it's like if you being evil, if your son or daughter asks for a fish, do you give him a snake? Of course you don't. And yet when I go through pain and suffering, I'm often tempted to think that God has given me a snake. And God is saying, I'm pursuing you, not abandoning you in this suffering. Because we're adopted as God's children, because He's our Father, because He's the one who gives us grace and peace, we are objects of His affection. Especially when we suffer. One of our grandchildren, one of the twins, a seven-month-old girl, she's got the most pitiful cry you've ever heard in your life. I mean, <laughs> you... You can't stand still. You can't. You have got to get up and run to her and pick her up and scoop her up in your arms. It's like your compassions are kindled when you hear that cry. That's the way our Father in heaven is. When you're suffering and in pain and feeling weak, He cannot stay away. Look at verse 3. He's the Father of mercies. He's not only our Father who is merciful, but He is the progenitor. He is the creator of all that could be called mercy. Verse 3. He's the God of all comfort, meaning it is God's nature, it is God's heart to comfort and to show pity and mercy. Verse 4. He comforts us in all our affliction. There's no affliction, no suffering, no pain where God doesn't come to us in His comfort. Verse 9, He sends suffering to make us rely not on ourselves, but on Him who raises the dead. Our Father is the Father who raised the Son, Jesus, from the dead. And that same power of the Father to resurrect, to grant new life, to grant spiritual vitality, to grant renewal and revival, that same Father comes to us in our suffering and pain. Verse 10, He delivered us and He will deliver us. God will never, ever, ever leave us as our Father. He will never abandon us. There's a, a movie called The Martian Child. It came out a while back. It's got John Cusack and Joan Cusack. Uh, John Cusack is a fiction, science fiction writer named David in the movie. And uh, he's married, and he experiences the tragedy of losing his wife. Uh, right when she died, they were in the process of adopting. And so he figures as a widower, as a single man, he's still going to adopt. So he applies, and the adoption agency calls him in, and uh, he's presented the opportunity to adopt this six-year-old boy whose mother was drunk constantly when she was pregnant with him. He was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. He has autism. He's socially awkward. He doesn't speak. He's pretty nonverbal. And then to make matters even worse, 
He was passed from foster family to foster family. He'd been to eight foster families in less than six years. And at least two of them had been abusive. In order to self-protect from his pain and suffering, he actually invented a worldview. He had begun to act and live and tell everybody that he was from Mars, that he had been sent to observe the earthlings, and that his presence on earth was only temporary, and he'd be soon going back by the mothership to Mars. Because Mars is farther away from the sun than earth, he was very concerned about the sun's rays since he was closer to the sun than a Martian should be. So he lived in a box with just little slits cut so that too much light wouldn't get in. Whenever he walked around outside the box, he always had an umbrella and he always wore sunglasses. He wore a weighted belt in case he began to be beamed up before his task was over on earth. He was a strange little boy. But David figured, who better than a science fiction writer to adopt this child? And so he began loving Dennis, began pursuing him over and over and over, no matter what Dennis had done, because Dennis was convinced he would not let anybody get close because he's been abandoned so many times. Finally, David is so close to getting to Dennis's heart, and Dennis is so afraid that in his bubble, he makes up the scenario that it's time for him to go back to Mars. And he's convinced that the mothership is coming to get him. So he runs away and he goes to the top of the city. There's a museum and he climbs at his own dangerous peril several stories up. And he's on the ledge hanging on. But now he's beginning to get scared. David had been pursuing him for hours, having no idea where he was. And finally, they discovered he was at the museum on the ledge. David, who's afraid of heights, pursues his son. He climbs up, and they're having this conversation. And David says, Dennis, I love you. I love you. Please come home. And Dennis looks at him with tears streaming down his face. Why did they do it? Why did they all leave me? Who would ever want me? And David says, Dennis, I'll tell you why those people did it. Because they were stupid. It was right there in front of them, this beautiful boy, this boy filled with compassion and care, this boy that is so brilliant and intelligent. And it was right in front of their faces and they didn't see it. But I see it. And I'll never ever leave you. He said, Dennis, look at me. I will never, never, ever, 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 ever leave you. I love you. And Dennis runs across the ledge into David's arms. And they go home and become a family. You know, that's exactly what God says to you and to me. In Hebrews 13, 5. I will never, 
never, never, ever, 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 ever leave you. Especially when you're suffering. And then thirdly and finally and really quickly, we find supernatural comfort in the fellowship of believers. One of the reasons God orchestrates suffering is so that we would experience comfort through the body of Christ. Look at verse 4. He comforts us so that we may be able to comfort others. It's not about us, people. We have turned the gospel into therapy. The gospel is not about being therapeutic. It's not all about you feeling happy and getting everything nice and right in your life. God will comfort us. That's beautiful. But God comforts us, verse 4, why? So that we might be able to comfort others with the same comfort with which we have been comforted by God. Look at verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Now that doesn't mean when we are afflicted and experience God's comfort that we save people's souls. Salvation doesn't always mean eternal conversion. Salvation also means growing in Christ-likeness. It means becoming more whole. It means being transformed. And God says that when we're suffering and God comforts us, it's for other people's, other people's salvation. Verse 11, you must also help us by prayer. You see, another way that we're comforted by the fellowship of believers, our prayers matter. Look, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm as Calvinistic as they come. Why? Because I believe the Bible couldn't be more clear. God is absolutely sovereign. He has ordained every single event, circumstance, and situation that comes to pass. And guess what? I still believe prayer matters. I think, well, pop, that makes no sense. I don't care. I don't care if it makes no sense. The Bible teaches it. Right here, Paul says... God will deliver me through your prayers. Now, does that mean God wouldn't have delivered him had not the Corinthians prayed? I don't know, and I don't care. It says, I will be delivered through your prayers. Our prayers matter. And when we have suffered, we know how important people's prayers on our behalf were. And when we, after suffering, run into people who are suffering and they ask us to pray, I don't know about you, but I actually begin to pray now. And then he says, our hope for you is unshaken, verse 7, knowing that as you share in our sufferings, you will also experience similar comfort. Paul is talking about the union with Christ that each of us experience when we're converted. Have you transferred your trust from yourself and your own efforts to make yourself presentable to God to get to heaven? Or have you acknowledged your helplessness and weakness and turned to Christ alone and trust in the power of the gospel and the finished work of Christ on your behalf? If you do, you're united to Christ and all of us 
who know Christ are united to Christ and therefore we're united to one another. And as a result, we're able to minister Christ's comfort to each other. Even as Christ pours out His comfort upon us. And so as we come to communion, we need to realize it's not just communion between us and Christ. It's communion between us and each other as well. On the night Christ was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it. And He said, this is my body broken for you. Then after supper, He took the cup and He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for remission of sins of many. Drink from it, all of you. This is not Oak Mountain's table. This is the Lord's table. And any and everyone who has named Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and you're walking in repentance on a daily basis and fresh faith, you are welcome to come to this table and partake of the sacrament that communicates us the mystery of the work of the Spirit to strengthen and nourish our lives in Christ and also strengthen and nourish our relationships with each other. Let's pray. God, set apart these elements from their common use. We recognize they're merely bread and the fruit of the vine and they're not magically changed into anything else. But we also realize this isn't a mere symbol. That in fact you use these elements and this practice as a means of grace to nurture, nourish, comfort, transform, and equip us for ministry. So come Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.